I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. Hello, this is To the Republic with Jake and Jeff, a show dedicated to exploring civics, history, and U.S. institutions. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. Um, I just wanted to repeat the goals of the show. Mm -hmm. Um, The goal of this show is to take an analytical look at historical background of our institutions and policies that have shaped um, the United States. And... We want to use this show as an opportunity to learn and hopefully um, to teach others yeah. about things that we have learned about and the research that we have done on these um, historical issues, but also institutions. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, a great thing to, to reiterate, Yeah, um, especially because in the spirit of this episode, we're looking at the actual, how that influence affects all of us, right. the public. Yes. So on this episode, we're going to look at um, public opinion and its relation to um, people Citizens, and but also government and policy. Mm-hmm. So in this first section, we're going to define public opinion, but also kind of look at, you know, further explore what it is. Definitely. I think um, that's important. So for a definition, I have public opinion is the aggregation of many citizens' views and interests regarding political issues, leaders, institutions, and events. Mm-hmm. And by aggregate, um, the definite in this context, yeah. aggregate means that it can be... Uh, relationship of loosely um, similar things. Right. So you can have ever you can have a whole group of people with a bunch of different opinions. Mm-hmm. Is but if they have, you can, they can even be differing opinions. But yes. it's just like on the whole, mm-hmm. they don't have to be all similar or all alike. It's just taking all opinions in the aggregate or as a as a whole sum, and then you know. Right. So it's the it's the combination of a bunch of different parts, and that could be. The combination of individuals, the combinations of maybe factions, or like the combination, the full combination of of groups. Yes, definitely. And having a definition of anything is important in in order to analyze it. And there's definitely different ways to look at public opinion, both as um, how to harness public opinion, how to define what public opinion is um, within a community or a or a nation, or if you're looking, if you're a politician or a publicist or something, and you want to. Um, you want to shape it in a certain way. Right. I think that looking at public opinion, you know, when, when deciding to tackle or look at this issue or this, this concept, um, in a simple way, just defining it, you know, that does, it almost does simplify it too much because this is a very, um, complicated Mm -hmm. kind of, um, concept. With that said, one thing that I wanted to look at is, um, this this origin of public opinion. Okay, where does this stem from? Who does it stem from? Interesting. Um, so this this public opinion, like we said, it's it could be as as specific as the individual or as broad as kind of the nation's idea about something. Um, but that all stems from um, preferences, whether that be politically or maybe social norms Mm -hmm. or community norms. Um, but also it could, it, it is 
reflection of self-interest, I think, a lot of times, too. Okay. Whether that be from an economic interest. Um, but And again, like whether that is stemming from your religious preferences or or just a bunch of different kind of values that, that shape who we are as individuals. And that's really well put. Um, it's pretty much right on line with a lot of the stuff I've read about public opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, American sociologist uh, Charles Horton Cooley mm-hmm. uh, emphasized that public opinion is a process of interaction and mutual influence rather than a state of broad agreement. Oh, so that kind of like gets that, that kind of gets into that uh, aggregate yes. uh, part of the definition that we used to define what public right. opinion is. And to further that, uh, political scientist Val Key defined it as opinions held by private persons which governments find it prudent to heed. So we start to see how the public opinion does influence policy right in a way what i like about that is kind of from what i was saying is as although it does stem from an individual it can stem from as small as the individual it is the interaction with one another or each other Mm -hmm. that kind of creates or shapes that broader public opinion yes and that and that that interaction allows for analysis absolutely and that's where the kind of conceptual framework for public opinion allowing for that analysis to take place um historians political scientists sociologists have all taken look at trying to um trying to further define and just further i guess to kind of understand that how public opinion influences policy right specifically government policy when when i first decided to to kind of look at this issue um it's because i had learned about it broadly or just kind of just a quick segment in a public uh political science course Mm -hmm. and now that we've kind of dove into research i think what you're saying there is is interesting because i i just got a small sample of what one professor kind of presented it as Mm -hmm. but there are different ways of looking at it through historical analysis through political science analysis and sociology analysis sure so i think it's kind of interesting that even though we're presenting it this way, there are a million other ways that it's been analyzed and looked at, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to do our best to. to because kind you know, of you're talking about public opinion of right. a nation of over 300 million <laughs> yes, people exactly. with all individual preferences, yes, <laughs> um, all trying to work within a republic. Yes, um, so it's uh, it, it definitely it, it's a fun area of study, yes. um, and we're just trying to add a little bit of a uh, little bit to that discussion. And all of those disciplines can look at public opinion differently mm-hmm. or interpret public opinion differently. Yeah. And then seeing how that results in policy, how that results in how politicians present arguments. Exactly. It, it's, it, it's fascinating. Right. Because there really is no answer. Yeah. It's just, you know, put it out there and see how the public responds to it. Yeah. So it's very theoretical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 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 So some of the conceptual, um, looks at public opinion have come from historians mm-hmm. and political scientists, as I had you know, just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And both of them have kind of, both the disciplines of history and political science have taken a similar look at public opinion um, and have theorized the concept of public opinion as a singular entity whose influence can be studied only on an issue-by-issue basis. Okay. So they, they, they take the, that whole aggregate sum mm-hmm. and then see how that... And then they try to gain some sort of similarity amongst that. Right. And then apply that apply to how it. that influenced policy. Yeah. A specific policy. Right. Not government in general, mm-hmm. but a specific you know, policy. Um, sociologists, con- um, conversely, 
contrastly, um, look at public opinion as a result of social interaction and communication. Um, a society's collective opinion, even in the aggregate, cannot exist unless members of that community share their opinion with each other through different mediums. I love both of those. Mm-hmm. I think they're so interesting as a student of history, but also interested in sociology. I think that a combination of both of those is very interesting mm-hmm. as far when when looking at definitely in 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 disciplines tend to look at you know look at it, it almost creates like a black and white issue, but mm-hmm. really it's mul- it's multi. It's multidiscipline. Yes, it, it's absolutely. It, neither one of them obviously have the right answer. Yes, yeah. By themselves, in and of themselves, mm-hmm. but in order to, you have to simplify things to its basic, you know, to the its base level in mm-hmm. order to build, you know, models off of that. Right. So that's why, you know, I'm sure even the top historians and, pol- and political scientists mm-hmm. would admit that some social, some of the sociologists, oh yeah, have you know, cre- there is credence to mm-hmm. you know to their. To their arguments right. about public opinion, um, but it's all. I think it's also interesting with with um, the sociologist profes- pr- perspective is mm-hmm. that communication has to take place. Absolutely, that's the part I liked about it. Mm-hmm. There has to be interaction between one another, between the individuals, groups, or or, or factions mm-hmm. or parties, if you will. And in the modern age, you know, it happening across different mediums, mediums and how public, and we'll get into this later yes. in the third segment, yeah. but especially in the modern era with, Absolutely. with, with internet, expanding people, expanding and, and connecting you to people who in, you know, pre-internet mm-hmm. would never have been possible. So right. how public opinion is being shaped now on a national scale, mm-hmm. even on a community scale, because you have access to communication with people mm-hmm. all over the world from different, from different uh, communities, from different factions, right. different you know, points of view. It's expanded outside of just your neighborhood or your little community. Now it can go to the neighboring community mm-hmm. or the neighboring uh, city even. Yeah. And, um, in addition to to that, one of the, the biggest area where sociologists differ from historians and mm-hmm. pol- political scientists is where historians and, and poli sci um, theorists, you know, see it as a singular, you know, as, you know, public opinion as a singular entity. Right. Um, they argue that it doesn't have to be. There can be a dominant pol- public opinion, and right. that's the one that's shaping uh, government policy. Mm-hmm. But there can be public opinions under you know existing on that pol- uh, existing in relation to that policy. Right. But they're, you know, but they're they're mi- they're minor, and they they're not going to be they're not going to be at the forefront of any sort of debate. Mm-hmm. But they still exist. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But both, you know, schools of thought on yeah. public opinion generally agree on four conditions of public opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, in order for public opinion to be a thing, it needs right. to meet these four conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, there must be an issue. Okay, so I mean that's pretty basic. That makes sense. <laughs> so whether whether it's a law yeah. or maybe a social issue yeah. or any specific thing that's going to get people either emboldened or or start to start a conversation to um, maybe even organize in some sense, there's got to be something that elicits that. Mm-hmm. Um, which would I don't know if that makes sense, but maybe public opinion. Well, it does. Yeah. So public opinion requires interaction which is what i'm saying right yeah. there but there has to be something to ignite that interaction. sure and, and issues are going to determine scale and scope yes um, oh good which, which good is point. which is in, which is important yes um i think that's if they're i think that's important to note about this first one which Definitely. seems basic i mean yes. yes there has to be an issue in order for people to have opinions about it <laughs> right but 
issues can be are are basically the measuring stick yes. of what you know at what level and how many people are going to be caring mm-hmm. of caring well about said it. well said um Number two, there yeah. must be a significant number of individuals who express opinions on the issue. Okay. So getting into that scope and scale right. thing. And I think that'll be, like you said, or alluded to, um, I think we're going to discuss a little bit about social media mm-hmm. and um, having a platform for that discussion or Definitely. a platform for for putting that opinion out there. Uh-huh. So that part about significant number, mm-hmm. why I, do you I, think that stands out? Yeah, I caught on to that too. Yeah. I think you... In any group of people, because mm-hmm. we're we're talking about public opinion can be as small as a community level right. or as large as the national level. Mm-hmm. And I think um, significant number needs to be probably. I'm going to guess probably over fifty percent, or at least right. Uh, at least as the majority of stakeholders. Right. I think that right there, uh, the majority of stakeholders is the the best way of putting it because. We're, it could be, like we've said a million times, it could mm-hmm. be as small as just a neighborhood issue. Yeah. But as long as the majority of the scope yes. is discussing it, then you can kind of analyze a public opinion. Definitely. And yeah, I think, um, and by stakeholders, we mean people who have um, something to gain or lose exactly. from right. this particular policy. Right. All right, what's the third one? The third one is there must be some kind of consensus among at least some of these opinions. Okay. So with that, I'm thinking that um, if it's just – if an issue or maybe a policy or or something is bothering one or two people, it's not going to affect or create a public opinion. Mm, that's a very good point. I think what this is saying, if I were to try to – put it into some more simple words would be to there must be some agreement amongst some of the people right um um, with on one side of the issue or the other Mm -hmm, like there mm -hmm. has to be people even you know we talked about public opinion being aggregated it's a loosely associated you know opinions right individual opinions but i think that on one side of the issue or the other there needs to be some sort of like-mindedness yeah absolutely you can't just have like a thousand differing opinions on an issue (laughs) that it's kind of split into one side or the other Mm -hmm. and within that one side or the other there is a general it can be loosely or more Mm -hmm. closely i think just depending upon the topic Mm -hmm. or the or the norms or the other people that are you know that are being analyzed or are forming a public opinion about something forming an opinion about something but there needs to be a you know agreement amongst them Right. This might be too far thinking, but just one one quick thought I was thinking about is like issues are complex and mm-hmm. complicated. Yes. And I think that although, yes, you need to have a split or or a majority on one side to, to kind of create that division. OK. I'm just thinking about there. There also has to be some sort of concession by individuals like ah, so so yeah. you have a, a, a large issue um, or maybe a piece of legislation and you may not agree with everything but you're going to have to concede to some of those parts of it to get what you want mm, i like that that's I, just a quick thought i was I, thinking about i think that fits in perfectly <laughs> with, with 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 what that condition is right. saying yeah uh, number four um in, la- in the last condition for mm-hmm. p- public opinion is um this consensus must directly or indirectly exert influence. Oh, okay. Yeah. And why I think this is important mm-hmm. is because as the social scientists have 
you know have concluded about public opinion mm-hmm. is that they're mo- it's it, it the most level the most place for analysis is how it affects government policy right and therefore in order for public opinion to really be you know in order for it to meet this condition of mm-hmm. public opinion it needs to in somehow some way affect the outcome of government officials and right. how they implement policy mm-hmm. and i think that you can see that in different in red in rhetoric of politicians right um how they're choosing to pitch their policy oh, yeah to the people yeah definitely. trying to meet specific uh goals or values mm-hmm. or um oh, okay. expectations yeah. of the voting public right and you can so you can see how you can see how pu- those you know pu- the opinion of the masses mm-hmm. at any particular level you know, are, is exerting influence in that particular way. Right. One quick thing I was also thinking about is there is an influence on politicians and government and legislation. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's an element of influence on your fellow citizens or other groups. Yes, definitely. So now that we've looked in this segment at what public opinion is and then the four conditions of public opinion that need to be met in order for it to be influential. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to look at the historical background of public opinion in the United States. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Hey, this is Jake with To The Republic. I wanted to give a big thank you to CBD of Vancouver and Taggart for supporting our radio community. They are dedicated to bringing wellness through concentrated CBD. The oil is derived from 0% THC, organic, non-GMO, industrial hemp. CBD of Vancouver is located right in Vancouver at 2700 Northeast Andreessen Road, Suite A5, and in Taggart, Oregon. More information available at 866-GOT-PAIN. That's 866-GOT-PAIN and at www.cbdofvancouver.com. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events including wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Tap Room and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow, Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.saychow.com. That's www.say-chow.com or directly at 360 210 Welcome back. You are listening to To The Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. Before the break, we defined public opinion and we listed the four conditions required for public opinion to exist. 
In this segment, we're going to look at the historical background and the relationship between politics, government, and public opinion. Okay, Jake, let's go way back. We're going to go way, <laughs> yes, way back uh, and look at uh, phil- uh, ancient philosophers, yeah. Plato and Aristotle, mm-hmm. who both had contrasting opinions on how people in power should either heed or ignore public opinion. Great. In their influence, in their you know, their formulation of policy mm-hmm. and decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, Plato argued that government shouldn't worry about public opinion um, and policy and decisions should be made by philosopher kings, by, okay. by people who are enlightened, people right. who have, edu- you know, have education, people who understand the very conceptual nature of democracy, because it is, democracy is a difficult concept mm-hmm. to, to explain. Yeah. And um, so Plato arguing that only those who have been, you know, taught the ways of democracy. Right, educated and in educated it. Educated yeah. should be the ones making decisions. Right. Um, whereas Aristotle contrastly believed that working with and heeding public opinion was a prerequisite for maintaining power and legitimacy of government. Yeah, that's so interesting because that those differing opinions, those differing philosophies transcend into the founders of the United States. Oh, definitely. And and you can see that in the way the Federalists mm-hmm. viewed the public versus um, you know, Democrat Republic Democratic Republicans right. um under Jefferson and Madison mm-hmm. viewed um you know, viewed the public. Mm-hmm. And their opinion. And their and, opinion. and how that related to um legislation and the formation of government really yeah it definitely is you can see in the in the the bedrock of our institutions Mm -hmm. in the writing of the constitution trying to rock that tightrope of you know how much public opinion how much heating public opinion is too much Mm -hmm. and or and then but also trying to keep in the spirit of democracy generally Mm -hmm. and you can in the almost the choosing of creating a constitutional republic right is in itself a reaction to this very fundamental debate about public opinions influence on oh politics. absolutely something that i i really enjoyed learning about in school um that i think is important is is just this this argument this fundamental argument um in constructing kind of the nation in the Federalist Papers and Mm -hmm. Anti-Federalist Papers. And they're having this conversation through these documents about how much or how little they pay attention or take notice of public opinion Mm -hmm. and why it is or isn't important. And I think it was great, you know, starting with the the Greek philosophers, if you will, but then how that transcended into, into this just debate between these two sides informing the government. Yeah, I mean it. It almost gets at the the very nature of government, right? Of, and the role oh, of yes, governance, yes. Which it gets into a role I think that the Federalists were trying to um, ask, which mm-hmm. is: Does the established institution have a role to protect norms or a constitution if a public opinion, if public opinion threatens them? Right. And then what does that role look like? Right. So the framers feared trusting the public when it come when it came to governing, and designed some institutions that insulated government from popular pressure okay um whereas there were scholars that argued american citizens lacked the fundamental political knowledge and have been unpredictable in opinions they reported to pollsters but others argued at the at the aggregate level that large you know Mm -hmm. larger group public opinion was coherent and 
stable. Okay. Um, and I think that that also gets into this 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 notion real quick. I wanted to touch on this this notion of rational ignorance. Okay. And that's a term that kind of comes up when discussing public opinion, and I think that that term reflects that fear of the public and their understanding of politics sure. and policy. Okay. Um, so rational ignorance is the deliberate choice of a person not to acquire a certain kind of information because it costs in terms of time and effort that yields little to no benefit. So that's something we can get into in another episode, but cost is yeah. a huge mm-hmm. thing when looking at political science and, and the cost of an individual's time is something that is always considered. Um, but I think when you're looking at public opinion, that was a concern. Sure. I mean, I think if you look at just agency in general of an individual, like right. what, how much work it takes to have your voice you know, heard mm-hmm. versus... I mean, just to just to have a voice to try to influence, you know, public opinion, or right. To change public opinion or to change an institution, let alone becoming an actor within those institutions mm-hmm. to change it from inside. Like that's the whole political process, right? And that's incredibly time consuming. And certain individuals you know, who don't see a you know a necessarily benefit or see a, a way of that happening mm-hmm. choose not to participate. Right. It's not necessarily like a, um, a it doesn't have to be necessarily a bad thing. Right. But. You know, it, it does get into that cost benefit analysis that helps explain why some people abstain from from being politically active. Absolutely. All right. So let's get back in back to looking at the history of of the early Republican public opinion. Yeah. So some of the research that I done, I did pointed me towards a book called 1775, mm-hmm. A Good Tear for Revolution by a historian named Kevin Phillips. OK. And he he took a look at the formation of American identity through like popular opinion. Right. And he pointed towards how the Amer- like the American Revolution required that those living in the in the United States that was well, prior to the United States right. living in the colonies mm-hmm. requ- it required them to be more than just a, a member of a political party right you know, like the you know, the Whigs or the Federalists or Republicans or Democrats mm-hmm. it took it took more of an identity shift mm-hmm. to be able to become revolutionary right and what he he points to is that um, Amer- the, the word American mm-hmm. prior to the revolution was more of a political party affiliation term mm-hmm. and through the use of media Thomas Paine's common sense, other publications um, from uh, Benjamin Franklin and other prominent writers of the time shifted that term American from a political identity, a political party affiliation to a national identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that that more so than anything with the, than with the proliferation of of those publications to, right. to bars, gentlemen's clubs, the home, especially mm-hmm. um, women becoming more influential through that, through right. you know talking amongst each other and, spre- and then spreading those I- spreading those ideas, yeah. creating that identity mm-hmm. was incredibly important towards the public opinion of revolution. Mm-hmm. So you can you can pinpoint it. It was m- very much a popular movement right. underneath, shaped by public opinion that led ultimately to the formation of an, of an American identity. Dude, that is a super interesting analysis. Mm-hmm. You could take that and, and look at it in so many ways, but I think that that is to, to draw that connection and, and how, how 
much that a public opinion or shifting those ideas was required to have the revolution. Mm-hmm. Wow. So throughout this episode, we've just kind of looked at public opinion kind of at the conceptual stage, but then also, you know, looking at just recently what we just talked about was the um, how public opinion shaped the revolution mm-hmm. in American identity. And I think that definitely carries through. You can look at that from a you know, variety of topics throughout our nation's history. Mm-hmm. But I think on the other side of it, too, is you have politicians who look to either limit pub- uh, public opinion, use public opinion in, mm. uh, to enhance power. Uh, the, I think the media definitely has a huge play in terms of how public opinion is shaped. Right. And just to kind of look at uh, several instances of, you know, that those fundamental debates that we talked about mm-hmm. with Aristotle and Plato. Right. And, uh, you know, then also with our you know, with, with our framers mm-hmm. and, you know, Hamilton was the quintessential federalist and right. he, the federalists really feared public opinion. Oh yeah. Um, and it, it, we, we talked about this, but they really, they feared public opinion because they didn't believe that, you know, the institutions could be held uphold over time. Mm-hmm. The, the more that the public had a direct influence in changing those. Fearing that sw- massive sways of emotion or, exactly. or, you know whatever's trending if you will sure i mean so so hamilton um hamilton and the federalists you know the the, the constitution was was penned by by james madison who mm-hmm. was a who was a federalist who ultimately would end up kind of defecting from the federalists a mm-hmm. little later um, mostly because of the alien and sedition acts of 1798 right but anyway so and that's why originally in the early republic if you remember from a past episode the senate what didn't have a direct vote Right, prior. right, and, and 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 when the when the constitution was first uh, first written and, and and ratified, the so there's only one half of one of the three branches of government mm-hmm. that had a like a real direct election of the people, right, representation of mm-hmm. the people, yeah. So and that was by design because of federalists who right. were the who were the predominant political ideology of the time, kind of leaving public opinion out of the out of the equation a little right. bit. And that starts to change over time. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, the pivotal moments where you start to see public opinion having more of a play in American politics, mm-hmm. and at least in the process of American politics, right. is after the 1972 election. And, and it actually happens within the political parties themselves. Okay. So in, the, in 1972, you have, um, prior to 1972, you have uh, the, the primary... The primary systems in terms of how the parties picked their candidate for mm-hmm. president, mm-hmm. the Democrats and the Republicans, used unbound delegates. Right. So the delegates could go to the convention mm-hmm. and cast their vote for whomever. Mm-hmm. And the public really had very little, if any, ability to vote on candidates within the party. Right, right, the primary right, right, system. Right. Because the, the delegates who were you know state or house representatives... Mm-hmm. Within each state, uh, governors, people who weren't on the national level, the, but generally they were political elites that were the delegates. Mm-hmm. So they were very much party-bound establishment people. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's completely changed. After right. 1972, the parties completely reshaped mm-hmm. their um, the primary system to allowing the uh, now but delegates are now bound by the elections that happen within each state. Right, right. So now you have much more open system, mm-hmm. which some scholars have argued allows for more extremist outsider candidates to 
uh, to gain, mm-hmm. you know, favor within the party. Right. And a book I'm reading right now is called the How Democracies Die. Mm-hmm. And they point to a, a, a case study of George Wallace, who ran for president in 1968, who mm-hmm. was he was a Democrat and a, um, a major uh, segregationist had pretty broad mass appeal and um, had upwards of almost 40% national approval rating, Mm -hmm. but at the convention received less than 5% of the, of the democratic party votes because the authors of this book claim that the invisible primary, regardless of what public opinion was, kept those kept extremist candidates Mm -hmm. like George Wallace away from any sort of power. Mm Mm-hmm. After 1972, they argue now that it's a more open system, public opinion playing much more of a role. Now it's they they said gradually has opened the door to more extremist candidates. Right. You can take you, we can argue for or against it, but I think in it in itself it shows it that's the the fundamental debate between you know the federalists and anti federalists. Yeah. In play, mm-hmm. especially within the primary system. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if this is. Correct. But what it sounds like you're describing is almost like with public opinion and the changing of the primaries, this this re not retooling, but this continuous um, development or finding this balance with democracy and mm-hmm. and the representation of the people yeah. and how that plays and how that changes um, and how those work together. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. And just a side note about the primary systems is that there's still now there is uh, there's still a little bit difference between Republican and Democratic yeah, primaries yeah. because the Democratic primary allows for superdelegates, mm-hmm. which outweigh this a superdelegate vote, which is a, a party establishment person. Mm-hmm. Um, ha- the a superdelegate outweighs the um outweighs the single vote of a of a of a democratically elected yeah um delegate to the convention which is kind of a hybrid system between the pre-1972 and post-1972 right. primary systems whereas the republican party went completely uh to bound delegates oh, every okay. delegate has you know one vote at the convention mm-hmm. and the the author of the book says you know that was became really apparent with the you know senator bernie sanders versus mm-hmm. secretary of clinton Democratic primary where right. it was because Secretary Clinton commanded so much of that establishment, um, you know, support. Right. She was going to carry those superdelegates, which was always she was going to win the right, primary right, regardless. Right, right. So, I mean, you could some people claim that that's a rig, you know, that's a rigged system. Yeah. Like, or you can just say that has just how the institution has always, you know, played out. But this tension over public opinion. Right. Is such an interesting debate to have. Well, and that that example right there with Sanders and Clinton could be an example of kind of putting parameters or control within that um, swaying public opinion, or or that that concern for giving too much power to the public. And prior to nineteen seventy two, well, e- even in the primary process, one one thing I've come, one kind of term I've come across in my research is the invisible primary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how candidates have to make it through the actual primary of voting, but the invisible primary, which is getting public, you know, giving support from media and establishment and how prior to 1972 um, had 
different effects on public opinion versus post-1972 and its effects on public opinion. So I think media definitely has a huge role mm-hmm. in public perception and public opinion. Oh, yeah. In both shaping it and then also being influenced by it. And in the next section, we're going to get into looking at um, different types of media and how media does kind of shape public opinion. And we're also going to look at measuring public opinion. But now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors Community Radio Like This is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics. Clark County's local print shop since 1993, ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Hey, it's Jeff from To The Republic. A big thank you to CBD of Vancouver and Tigard for supporting our radio community. They are dedicated to bringing wellness through concentrated CBD. The oil is derived from 0% THC, organic, non-GMO industrial hemp. CBD of Vancouver is located right in Vancouver at 2700 Northeast Andreessen Road, Suite A5, and in Tigard, Oregon. More information available at 866-GOT-PAIN. That's... 866-G-O-T-P-A-I-N and you can also find them at www.cbdofvancouver.com I'd also like to give thanks to Just In Time Electrical for supporting our radio community. The professional electricians of Just In Time Electrical have the skills, training, and experience to complete your electrical project. Just In Time Electrical offers residential and commercial services which include installations, upgrades, repairs, rewiring, and maintenance. More information available at myjustintimejob.com. That's myjustintimejob.com or at 360-836-5806. Welcome back to To The Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Jeff. Before the break, we talked about the history of public opinion and some of the key arguments surrounding it, especially in the American context. Right. And in this section, we're going to take a look at measuring public opinion and shaping public opinion. So one way of measuring public opinion is through polls or public opinion polls. Mm -hmm. And those can be used for a lot of things. They give you a lot of data and we'll get into that. But um, I think in regards to government or politicians... A lot of time it can help them determine whether or not they want to run for office okay, or, you know, what policies are supported and how much they're supported or how less. Um, And it also polls can also show like how the votes might go. Sure. So I think if we're going to look at polls, I think we should take a look at kind of how they work and how they're constructed. Definitely. Um, Because they can be so reliable for for politicians and just for data for the media to use to, mm-hmm. to let everyone to inform the people so how polls go about asking questions and determining who they ask the questions and how they formulate their research right and how they start on their research and a lot of it has to do with you know distribution how much um, the more accurate polls are going to ask a especially if they're asking a, a question on the na- a, a national level right. question something like your preferences for president mm-hmm. they're going a more reliable poll is going to pull for take polling data mm-hmm. from a wide distribution yeah the reliability of those polls is completely dependent on the 
the sample size mm-hmm. and the construction of that sample. Definitely. Yeah. And the construction of the sample can be, you know, how to how is you know, how the wording of the questions are are presented mm-hmm. to the people that you know they're asking they're asking the questions right. To. Trying to remain without bias in those questions or to steer somebody to maybe answer a certain way is something that is that goes into constructing those questions. Mm-hmm. Because and then also giving as much information as possible, I yeah. think, is also important too. Uh, Pew Research uh, Center. Uh, kind of gave a list of how they go about asking questions about, especially the president, like presidential races, mm-hmm. and making sure that both the president, when they're asking, you know, preference, they're making yeah. sure that both the the presidential and vice presidential candidates' names are asked in the question. Mm. Um, that the party affiliation of those people is explicitly stated or written, right. whether it, uh, um, or if you have like a third party candidate, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that it gives they give kind of a description of where those people fall on the spectrum, right? So, you, so you can get a more accurate reading of you know where's people where people's that particular individual's preference lies, right? And 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 including all of that within a question, that information to also inform them through the question, I think allows for better responses, but also it provokes thought in those that are being asked the question oh yeah and then, definitely. and then when that data comes out that question is also presented with the data obviously mm-hmm. and then hopefully that'll provoke more thought into the masses as they look at this information sure and most polling agencies give a whole scientific breakdown of the questions that they ask right. and the distribution of their of the of the, uh, of the population polled mm-hmm. and, and then they'll break it down by demographics and and better uh, polling agencies will try to get a if they're going to pull a thousand people mm-hmm. they'll try to make sure that they get you know if if African Americans are a certain population percentage of the overall population mm-hmm. they'll try to reflect that in the amount of people that they ask relative to that you know thousand you know a thousand is thousand people is supposed to be an accurate representation of the country as a whole mm-hmm. they'll try to have an equal represent equal percent of that particular demographic right. within that thousand to try to get as most of an accurate understanding of where the public opinion is at on that particular topic and i think it's important just really quickly to note that these are done because you can't obviously pull every single citizen Mm -hmm. and so creating the sample size through scientific methods gives a representation of the nation like you were saying Mm -hmm. um and what i found through some of my research is that uh, a lot of these polling agencies the the numbers that they found best work are within a thousand like you said to 1500 yes so i just thought it would oh i should note that yeah, and, and I always appreciate how um, accurate these polls really are. Mm-hmm. Um, with this last presidential election, other than not calling the the race correctly, right? But they were they weren't looking at most of the national polls. were talking about the popu- the p- voting population nationally. What mm-hmm. the, what the what the percentage gap was, and most of most polling agencies were showing a Hillary Clinton with a two to three percent. Um, advantage over you know eventual president trump and that was pretty much the distribution now within the electoral college changes all of that absolutely but the the popular vote was within that you know that uh within that margin of error right of the of the poll actually pretty spot on not Mm -hmm. even not even you know taking the margin of error out they were pretty pretty spot on it's pretty spot on and that's incredible if you think right. about it, how many millions of votes were cast and they were able to accurately predict that by, mm-hmm. you know, several, a series of several thousand people 
breakdowns of within their within each individual because like a polling company will do will do polls throughout the throughout the election season mm-hmm. but you know five six polls leading up to election season calling that right after a sample size of like a thousand people is just really incredible yeah i think that's a good point because i think that sometimes when when events or or outcomes like that happen you might see a change in distrusting polls mm-hmm. and i think that you make a good point in showing that they, by taking their sample size and using their scientific methods, they are pretty accurate in gauging the public opinion. Mm-hmm. Another interesting kind of idea is that these poll results can sometimes create like a bandwagon effect. Yeah. Where support for a candidate or an issue increases because that candidate or issue has been reported to be popular through the polls. And and that makes sense because it's in, in you can see that happening with with uh, voter preferences mm-hmm. and in if you go back to episode two our voting uh, our voting episode where first past the post voting very much so rely like candidates rely so much on polls mm-hmm. because it creates that bandwagoning effect and then, but it also limits the ability of smaller parties to ever really gain traction right because first past the post voting we get into that episode if you're interested in that go and listen to that episode mm-hmm. but it you know basically what it's you know saying is that there really can't be because of the voting rules there can't be more than two parties right um be, and a lot of that bandwagoning can also contributes to that absolutely um and i also want to take a minute to really quickly we should define the margin of error so margin of error can actually has two definitions in terms of polling mm-hmm it can be one, uh, it's the statistic expressed by the polling agency of the random sampling uh, of random sampling errors that can occur. So if they're not, if they don't capture a, a good proportion of one, dem- like the, pr- the correct proportion of a demographic mm-hmm. within, within their thousand or 1500 person sampling size, right. that will, that will show up in what they call their margin of error, which you'll see plus minus right. the number. Um, or it can be, represented as the confidence that that polling agency has in that particular poll mm-hmm. and the first thing i'm they're, they're not mutually exclusive they can inter- those two definitions can influence each other mm-hmm. a little bit um but when you see a poll and you see plus minus one two three four right that's that can be that's the percentage error so it can be so what if if it says you know President Trump has an approval rating of you know forty two to fifty two percent, and they say there's a there's a sample there's a sample error of plus minus three points, mm-hmm. so you can add or subtract three points either side. That's giving that poll leeway. Mm-hmm. Anything that's above four is a pretty poor poll. Right. Uh, yes. You, most polling agencies are trying to get their margin of error down to one or two. Mm-hmm. And the best polling agencies will, can usually get that number. Right. And as you mentioned, they have the scientific methods and scientific evidence to show how they've constructed those questions, how they've constructed those polls to minimize that margin of error. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that polls are probably the most popular way or most used way of measuring public opinion sure but let's take a look now at shaping public opinion and how that how that's done okay and that could be done through i think today you know his just traditionally you think of the media mm-hmm. or whether that be news even even television shows can be included in that but i also would like to touch a little bit on social media sure so looking at the mainstream media or news okay. um kind of the three 
broad ideas that are related to media and public opinion are their roles in informing, um, gatekeeping, and advocacy. Okay. So with information, obviously, I, mean, I think that's kind of an easy explanation. The news is there to inform. Sure. Um, media is there to inform. When when you get into like the roles media play, like whether it's a TV shows, you have TV shows that kind of address social issues mm-hmm. or um, policies in some form. Yeah. That can be a way of, of informing as well. Um, but more specifically, the news um, that we see is is there to inform. I think when we get into the gatekeeping area of that role of the media, um, I think that that's where people get a little less comfortable with the analysis or the role that media plays in um, public opinion because you are filtering the news and the stories through um, a media company, if you will. So they're controlling or limiting access to news or stories or information. Definitely. And, and it's impossible. I mean, I just want to state, I mean, it's impossible for any person to present news without being biased. Absolutely. There's always going to be an, and an, there's always going to be a slight amount of bias in whatever, you know, whenever information is transferred from one person to another. Definitely. So with that said, I think that the, the third role that media plays in is advocacy. And I think that that is also important because it gives attention or, or sheds light on issues that maybe aren't either discussed in the home. And that's one aspect of this media that I was thinking about earlier is is that this news, when you have news on the television, whether it be on the television, print, or on the internet, mm-hmm. that's bringing that information into homes and sometimes sparking conversations or interest into maybe lesser-known social issues or policies or government Definitely. And you see media and government kind of being intertwined historically. Uh, I like how you demonstrated that through um, the revolution in print Mm -hmm. and how you needed that media to kind of encourage that shift, to encourage that public opinion to enact action. Sure. Sure. And then there's been there's been reverberation and like a counter to that too, especially when people feel that the that media is going in a way that might upset the balance the current balance of power mm-hmm. and might bring about institutional change that won't affect those who are currently in power. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, historically, has had periods where. It has failed to uphold, you know, freedom of the press, and mm-hmm. there's been things that have there's been attacks against the the press right. and uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts of uh, 1798, which were passed by President Adams, mm-hmm. were um, limited. It made it illegal for any media to speak ill of the government, right? And that caused massive pushback across mm-hmm. the government. But you see very early on that even the framers, yeah you know, dealt with a lot of the issues that we, that we see today. Um, and it's not anything new. It's right. It's in the media, media and public opinion. This has been a, <laughs> this has been a struggle for a long period of time. Right. I was also thinking that like, like we had mentioned how polls can sometimes, if they, if they reveal something to be popular, that might change an opinion on that. Mm-hmm. I think the media has that same ability. Yeah. If a media is representing something to be 
in favor or popular that that could also shape or shift public opinion. Yeah. Another tool or sphere that is shaping public opinion is the increasing presence of social media. Uh. So social media creates a whole new sphere or place for people to interact, Mm -hmm. exchange ideas. Yep. Um, banter mm-hmm. <laughs> and argue as as <laughs> many people I'm sure have seen but um, I think it's completely changed the game of public opinion and 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 that spread of information compared to the way it's worked in the past yeah I think it's it's definitely a, a it's it's different but also follows a lot of the same patterns of too mm-hmm. and you also see how um, there's calls for uh, you know regulation on that from the government. So oh you, yeah, definitely. And there was an article in the Atlantic recently mm-hmm. that was arguing for the the limiting of social media or the regulation of those social media platforms mm-hmm. to try to um, you know stop the spreading of quote fake news. Oh okay. And you start to I mean you start to see just the old debates mm-hmm. bringing up again. It, you know, it requires the government to. De- to defend democratic norms and but it's, it's just like it's 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 a new type of media but the same debate right so one argument that i saw or one one point that i saw on pew research center's site about social media is that social media the the one ability that so- social media creates is the ability to kind of leap barriers mm-hmm like that gatekeeping of the normal media, regular media, if yeah. you will. Um, but I also think that you get into the territory that you're talking about where there's misinformation being spread mm-hmm. because of the the ability to kind of get through barriers and to reach other people. And, you know, stemming off that idea of reaching others, I think social media, in the same way that traditional media does, um, as far as advocacy, mm-hmm. you see mobilizing on social media. You see people kind of getting together with like-minded people to kind of stand up for injustices. Sure. Uh, and that can often lead to, you know, meeting in person and mm-hmm. creating, whether it's marches or, or protests, you see the media, the social media's ability to construct or facilitate a place for public opinion to grow. Which is perfect that you bring that up because following along with the sociological view of public opinion yeah. and how that's conceptualized in that discipline is that you have to have that human interaction in order for public opinion to even form. To even exist. Yes. You need that aggregate population to have similar ideas, yep. to share ideas, to have a majority move forward with an idea or an opinion. And well, Jeff, I think that brings us just about around to full circle. Yeah, that was good. All right, Jake. Well, this has been fun. It's always fun. It is always fun. Uh, If you guys have enjoyed this show, be sure to check out our weekly podcast called Say What You Mean. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And we'd like to thank you guys for listening to our show. You can find the past episodes of this show on www.kxrwvancouver.org or on our podcast feed. And remember to vote and stay informed. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. 
They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Hey, this is Jake, co-host of To the Republic on KXRW. I just wanted to say thanks to Just-In-Time Electrical for supporting our radio community. The professional electricians of Just-In-Time Electrical have the skills, training, and experience to complete your electrical project. Just-In-Time Electrical offers residential and commercial services, which include installations, upgrades, repairs, rewiring, and maintenance. More information available at myjustintimejob.com. That's myjustintimejob.com. Dot com or at 360-836-5806. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events including wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Tap Room and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow, Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.saychow.com. That's www.say-chow.com or directly at 5522. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics. Clark County's local print shop since 1993, ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at ADCO1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com.